Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Carola Schonlieb. Carola is an applied mathematician at the University of Cambridge. She's also a Turing Fellow at the Alan Turing Institute and the head of the Image Analysis Group at Cambridge's Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics. In this episode, we cover mathematical approaches to image processing. All right, here we go. We ought to start with a little bit of your background. Mm -hmm. So what did you start researching, and then what are you researching now? Okay. So I started out uh, my research in mathematics in Austria, in Vienna, uh, where I actually didn't look at image processing or imaging at all. I started out with uh, so-called partial differential equations, Mm -hmm. which are equations of a function and its derivatives. So you take, take an express change over time or space. And uh, they are models for various natural phenomena in physics and biology. Lots of things are explained via these differential equations. And uh, my first paper, again, had nothing to do with image processing. It was actually on uh, the Kahn-Hillard equation, which is an equation that describes phase separation and coarsening in alloys, mm. in metallic alloys, for hmm. instance. So when you cool them down to a certain temperature, you have a, you have a mixture of two. And you, if you cool them down to a certain temperature, they are starting to separate from each other and coarsen out and build these larger yeah. areas. And so there is an equation that models this kind of phenomenon, which is the Kahn-Hillard equation. Okay. And uh, my first paper was on uh, the stability analysis of a certain type of solutions to this Kahn-Hillard equation. Uh, stability analysis, meaning that if you perturb your initial condition a little bit, how much is your stationary solution? That is when you let time evolve infinitely. Okay. How, you know, when a stationary state is a state of where the system is in no change anymore. Okay. <laughs> how much do these stationary states differ from each other when you just perturb the initial condition a little bit? And this is in the context of creating alloys or building structure alloys for structures, or what was there any particular purpose? Well, the purpose is a lot with these differential equations to simulate certain phenomena. Mm-hmm. And so if you understand how stable these stationary states are, so if you are at a stationary state and then you perturb the stationary state a little bit, is it going back to the same stationary state? Okay. Or is it going somewhere completely different? So you kind of understand how the system how these systems uh, react to perturbations that are naturally occurring because we are in real life and things happen. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so it's more an understanding of the physical processes involved in, you know, mixture of alloys, for instance, or things like that. And were you at a technical university where you would be like focusing on alloys or this was a personal interest? Not or? at all. So okay. it was just so... <laughs> Actually, you know, a lot of applied mathematics on the continent, which is everything else in the yeah. UK, basically here in Europe, um, is uh, applied mathematics very much means that you're, what you're doing is inspired by applications, but eventually you end up with a mathematical problem. So it was really the driving factor was, well, we were interested in analyzing this equation and, and there were techniques coming up that 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 are kind of cool and uh, <laughs> yeah so it, it it was just a kind of intellectual interest in this equation okay. that was the driving factor for this particular paper but then during writing this paper um research at UCLA researchers at UCLA in particular the group of uh, Andrea Bertozzi um used this same equation to do image restoration 
Hmm. Um, and image restoration meaning you have a digital image and there is there are parts of this image which are damaged for some reason or which where which are which are where you have objects which are occluding some other object of interest that you want to get rid of the occlusion or something like this so you have one part in the image yep. that you somehow want to replace by something that is suggested by the surrounding okay. area of this of this region. So is this similar to like content aware fill in Photoshop? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, exactly. But, and the, but this predates the Photoshop development, I assume. It actually does. And I mean, also the content aware fill is actually very much based on some of the things that have been initiated by people like Andrea Batozzi. So, okay. I mean, the technique is different in what Photoshop is using, but it's still based on research in mathematics. In fact, yeah, uh, it's a differential equation. Maybe if you want, if, if you wish that is more, is it, not the Kahneman equation, but it's a different type of differential equation that is non-local. It's taking okay. patches in images and kind of copy and pasting them into the region that you want to replace. Yep. Um, but anyway, so she used the Kahneman equation to do that. And, um, that was a kind of eye-opening moment. And then I, I, I moved into image processing, still sticking to differential equations at the time mm. and uh, actually looking at image restoration. So at this Photoshop content aware fill, yeah. <laughs> uh, type problem. Um, and yeah, and that, and that was basically my PhD. My PhD was about image, uh, restoration. Okay. And during my postdoc, then I moved more and more into what is called inverse imaging problems, where what you are observing or what you're measuring in the first place is not an image. Like when you take a, f a photo, you know, the digital image is an image. Uh -huh. So, um, but there are certain uh, applications like in biomedical imaging, where what you're observing is not an image directly, but is some transform of this image, like an image tomography, for instance. Mm, okay. Uh, think about CT, for instance, computer tomography. What you are, what the CT, tom what the tomograph is measuring um, are projections of, your three-dimensional object, mm. which is whatever you have in your body. And from that, you want to reconstruct the object. So right. projections meaning in the CT sense, a particular sense, which is that you send X-rays through the body and what you're measuring. So you're sending them through what you're measuring at the other end is the attenuation that they feel when they travel through the body, depending on which type of tissues they uh -huh. hit. And uh, so that's what you're measuring on the other hand. And you can model that by saying you what you're measuring is a is a line in, is an is an integral along the line that the x-ray takes through your body where you're integrating over the attenuation that it feels yep um and so from that and that is a very old problem it goes back to radon it's called the radon transform what you're measuring is not an image but it's the radon transform of your image uh which are line integrals over the image density that you want to reconstruct Right, that, gotcha. that consists then where the density is different in different parts of your body, and then you can see organs in your body and stuff like that. Right, and so the the likelihood of there to be some amount of it missing that you need to fill or recreate or denoise is much higher than an image, like, yeah, and less obvious. That's quite obvious because, okay. well, first of all, um, we are in, in a finite dimensional world, <laughs> so you know you don't have all possible infinitely many line integrals of your body measured. Yeah. 
Um, and then it's not even, you know, it's not even, um, it, that would be still okay if you're measuring as many line integrals as you, uh, you're corresponding to the resolution of the image that you then want to compute from these line integrals. But then very often it's not like that because you don't want to, you want a very high resolution image because you want to look at all the details in the body. Right. But, um, you don't want to, um, measure so many line integrals because you don't want to radiate the patient so much. You don't want to send tons <laughs> of x-rays through, through the patient. So you have uh, a lack of data. You, you don't have as much data as you want the, you know, for a high resolution image to reconstruct. And then there is noise because these are measurements. Right. And uh, there is always noise in measurements. And so were you doing denoising work as well at the same time? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's integrated in the reconstruction approach. So in, in the, in the mathematical algorithm that reconstructs an image or, you know, the three dimensional yeah. inside of your body from these line measurements, there is, um, the denoising is integrated into, into this reconstruction step coming, you know, from, from these line integrals reconstructing a three. Gotcha. Okay. And so what, I know about denoising mostly through audio, like a Fourier yeah, transform okay. and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So how are you doing it with an image? How are you denoising in the algorithm? So um, so with images, it depends on what you think is important in an image. That will determine how you're going to denoise it, let's okay. say. Uh, a very uh, successful assumption that has been made for designing image denoising approaches is, is and has, has been and still is that uh, the most important information that visually guides your of what this image is showing you, but also that helps you if you want, later want to quantify something in the image, um, are the edges in the image. This is the most important thing. Where are boundaries between different objects? Okay. Yep. When you think about it, what really, what really makes an impression on you of what this image shows are colors, you know, and the, and the boundary between these colors, where are the colors changing? And, the, and these are the edges in the image. Interesting. And uh, to preserve those and not make them blurry, uh, blur, blurred, blurred out is something that um, a lot of research in image denoising has gone into. Uh, so image denoising methods, which can preserve edges in an image. And so the Fourier, you know, Fourier, uh, type techniques are good. Uh, they can smoothen out yeah. the noise by taking away the high frequencies, yeah. but they will take away the high frequencies everywhere, right. which means they will also take away the high frequencies that correspond to edges where the image function is changing rapidly. Yeah, right? so this you're looking for high, the delta. This is a very right. high frequency component of your image, and but this is a component you would like to keep. Yeah. Okay. And so you want to differentiate between the high frequency components in the image, which is, which are just noise and the high frequency components, which correspond to these very characteristic features that you want to keep. Gotcha. And so, you know, there are various techniques, but one very successful one is uh, total variation regularization, for instance, which is, um, 
a technique that has been used a lot by people in image denoising hmm. to, you know, that models this, this assumption that you have sharp discontinuities. Median filtering is a, is a, is a maybe simpler thing to understand or that people might have heard about, which is not exactly total variation denoising, but it's related. Gotcha. So median filtering instead of Gaussian filtering right maybe where gaussian filtering corresponds to your fourier taking away the high frequencies type of thing oh okay yeah. got you you know it's so funny when i was doing photoshop of the onion we were always actually interested in blurring edges because one of the most obvious things to spot a photoshop is a sharp edge and a soft edge in the same photo okay. so for instance like if i were to cut you out and then put you in front of the white house if the photo has a slight blur, so like the depth of field in the photo is like, say, like a 1.4 aperture, which creates a very, very like shallow depth of field. So there's yeah. a lot of blur. Yeah. But if you're crispy, someone can immediately spot that you were dropped into the photo. So it was all about blurring the edges oh, to trick someone yeah. into thinking that yeah, it was yeah. in the same photo. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So, so in your context... These these algorithms that will handle the edge sharpness, mm -hmm. um, are they hand-coded or are you using machine learning to create them? How, how does that work? So they are classically hand-coded. Um, yeah. And uh, this is maybe something that is now, you know, more and more being replaced by other things where where image denoising nowadays i think the best image denoising approaches are actually coming from deep neural networks okay uh so you know these handcrafted methods uh get more and more beaten in terms of performance uh by some of these neural network approaches they get beaten in certain scenarios, though, because okay. uh, they get beaten on the, on the type of examples they have seen already or similar type of images that they have seen already, right? If you present them with something completely different, right? If they, if you only train them on photographs of animals or whatever, right? Uh, and then you present them with a CT image or with a CT scan, they will, they, they will not be able to handle that. So that is one of the things I think we're still, Handcrafted models have a certain justification of existence in right. a sense, because, um, there is not, there is still, you know, although we can do GPU programming and everything, there is still not enough computational power to train a machine to know everything, to learn everything about the world. Right. Um, and so I think a lot, so while, you know, in certain scenarios, if you know what you want to apply your image denoising approach well, to. Well, it was like the image net thing from like almost 10 years ago. Exactly. Yeah. If you know that, then it's fine. Right. And um, that's good. But if you, uh, if you want, you know, think about, for instance, one big thing in CT, let's say, uh, or in different types of biomedical imaging, uh, let's say MRI, yeah. magnetic resonance tomography. The, the type of image that you get, the resolution, the contrast and everything very much depends on how you do the acquisition. How many, let's say in the CT case, how many x-rays you have, yeah. <laughs> you have been shooting through the patient. Um, but also, also, and that is actually, um, connected to what I just said. Also, the type of scanner you're using. Are you using a G or a Siemens or Toshiba or whatever? They, they have different settings okay. and they have different ways of going from the measurements to an image. And so 
you know, if you train an algorithm, for instance, a neural network on one of these scanners, it doesn't mean that it works on the, on images of, of another scanner. Really? So they're producing entirely different data. I thought they were just like basically the same tools inside with a different logo. Well, it, it, so, so this is the other interesting thing. It's not entirely different, right? You might right, not yeah. spot also visually what the difference is. But uh, this is one of the things that also people start you know, more and more hopefully start to, you know, uh, do some research and understanding this, that even small perturbances that are, but that are consistent yeah. in uh, small differences that are consistent between the different scanners might contribute to your algorithm then failing. You know, I, I don't know if you have seen these adversarial errors where you do a little perturbation and then all of a sudden right. it, it classifies the image into something completely different. Right. So, yeah. So I think the, 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 the really very exciting and, uh, for mathematicians in particular, the exciting opportunity that neural networks are now offering in contrast to these handcrafted models. Yeah. Um, are that they can go beyond just saying, yeah, I want an algorithm that, that preserves edges. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very simplistic view of the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but on the other hand, that there are lots of unknowns in these algorithms. On the one hand, that mathematicians, I think, should be exploring and try to bring some of the analysis and some of the methodologies that help us to understand why these handcrafted models work, because we, we can prove, um, f properties about the denoising, um, abilities of these methods of how stable they are, mm -hmm. for instance, to perturbations in the images. We know, how, we know how that works. So we can prove things about them. Yeah. We have error estimates and things like this. And to bring those over to neural networks, I think, would, is very exciting. But for that, bringing some structure into these neural networks is also important. And that might, on the other hand, when you think about these neural networks having these 100 millions of parameters that, that are adapting, to, that are adapting themselves to the data, maybe in some cases it would be better to not have a million parameters, but have an intelligent structural way of reducing the search space right and as such bring some structure into the problem which helps you make statements about stability and things like that well and, and also statements them, about what the algorithm is actually doing and, and what it, statements what it's about what the algorithm is doing yeah because so that is another yeah. thing right because since when you look at these handcrafted models you have started with a hypothesis right you have started with a hypothesis of Edges are important in images. Right. And then you've, you come up with a mathematical algorithm that is exactly doing what you want it to do, right? Yeah. Or, you know, then you have to make sure that it's actually doing what you want it oh, to do. And if it so doesn't, then that code is bad. Then it's not The code is bad or yeah. your model is bad. Maybe you right. have to change your model in a certain way. Okay. Um, but you understand why things are happening. Yeah. If you have millions of parameters and then, you know, you train this algorithm to do something and then you get a parameterization that is a one million different parameters, how are you ever going to interpret that? There are ways, you know, where, where machine learning people are, are, are trying to interpret, 
classification results, for instance. Yeah. You have these salient features that you can detect in the image what was important for the classification to, to do this or this. Yeah. But it's still limited. Mm. And I think, uh, yeah, there are lots of very, very cool opportunities. And so are, are you guys working on hand stitching the two together at this point? Like, wh What's the status of the current research? Yeah, so... There, there are different people are do, trying to do different things. So, um, I can, I can first tell you what I've been doing over, over the last couple of years. So the last couple of years, what I've been doing is uh, I've been trying to starting with these more handcrafted models, nothing to do yet with neural networks. I started with the handcrafted models and then, um, for, Certain parts in these models where I wasn't quite sure about our edges really the only thing I'm looking for. For instance, yeah. I've tried to parametrize them in a certain way. Okay. But not with a, with a million parameters, but maybe with 10 parameters or something like this. And then learn these parameters from actual examples that okay. I would like my handcrafted model to spit out. Mm -hmm. And this is what we call bi-level optimization. Um, or parameter estimation. I mean, people have been doing this for a long time, but now I think uh, the motivation comes more from, you know, there is a certain interpretation in terms of machine learning that uh, is kind of exciting that where people are, yeah, yeah. more, <laughs> more, more, more interested in. Um, so this is one way and levels of parameterization vary in this context, but the good thing is you, you have a handcrafted model in the end that you still understand right and that you can still prove things about you still have guarantees on your solution um you know you have guarantees that uh if you, you you don't have these adversarial errors that if you perturb a little bit you get a completely different result this is really something you don't want right um the other thing is and this is this is more blue sky and this actually goes a little bit against what i said before okay. <laughs> um which is we have been starting to use deep neural networks for problems in computer tomography, for instance. Um, and there at the moment, we cannot prove a lot of things, um, but we can see some ways of how to combine these more handcrafted models with neural networks in the sense of what you feed them with. For instance, the prior information you feed them with, the data, maybe not just the measurements, okay. but maybe also the information that the measurements are actually line integrals okay. of the 3D object that you want to reconstruct. Yep. Um, and doing this in a kind of iterated fashion where you always go back to the fact that, ah, actually remember neural network, these are line measurements that I'm feeding you with. Remember this. And then you, you, you do another sweep through the neural network. But, the, but then how does that work in the context of building out a model around, say, like, I mean, I don't even know in an MRI how many images are created or like 10 or lines are monitored, but like, say you have 10,000 images. Mm -hmm. but you want to create a combination of a hand-coded algorithm and a machine learning system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you go about tagging all that stuff? Yeah, what do you mean exactly? How are you going to... So what I understand you're saying is like yeah. you're giving it more data than just like the original source material. Yes. And yeah. so yeah. how do you do that with a more like at larger scale? Huh, computationally, you mean? Yeah. Okay, so um, computationally, we are doing this in a sequential manner. 
Okay. So we're not, uh, so you can do it in different ways, but in a sequential manner means that you're not feeding it the 10,000 images at the same time, but you're doing it bit by bit and you're adapting your objective towards this. Okay. Another thing about computational performance is also, of course, that the optimization that is underlying, but this is not just the problem that we have. This yeah, is sure. the problem yeah. that, you know, neural networks have in general is, that uh, you do not necessarily need to solve your optimization problem, your training exactly. And maybe sometimes or most of the time you actually don't want it, want to save it exactly because you only have a finite amount of training examples. And so when you think about what these neural networks are doing, they are trying to minimize a loss over the training examples that you have. Mm -hmm. But this loss is only an approximation of many, 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 many more images that you want your neural network to work right. for. And so very often you do not want to solve that exactly. You don't want to minimize your loss exactly mm. for this training set. Okay. Um, and so there are different types of optimization methods that people are using, but the main thing in machine learning is stochastic optimization. So you don't minimize, ex you know, exactly for all the variables that you have, but you randomly pick a certain amount in every sweep through the network that you're optimizing for, and then you randomly change which ones you're optimizing in the next sweep and so on. And just so I understand, uh, minimizing loss, why don't you want to do that? Um, so what you're minimizing, uh, if you're, so if you're, so the loss, let's say, could be the least squares error. Yeah. Uh, between let's let's go back to denoising let's say you want um you, you want to train your neural network to optimally denoise images by saying for this training set where i have both noisy and clean images yep. um i want that if i sum over the difference between the denoised image so you feed your neural network with a noisy image, it gives you a denoised image. Mm -hmm. You want that this denoised image is closest in a least square sense to the clean image that you know in this case because you have a training set. You have gotcha. a label, you have a true label for this noisy image, which the label in this case is your ground truth image. Okay. Um, and you want your denoising method, which is this neural, this neural network, to produce denoised images such that all of them are in the least square sense closest uh, to the original label, to the ground label, which is the clean image. Okay. And you want that to work over all the images in the training set. Got you. Okay. Okay. So, but let's say you have 10,000 of these images that you both know the clean and the noisy image. If you would perfectly fit to this training set, if you would perfectly minimize this loss function, you could think, and again, you know, people are not really understanding this. And I, and I also don't really understand this, but conceptually the idea is what you actually want to minimize is not the loss just over the training set, but it's the loss over an infinite amount of images which you then want to denoise, gotcha. right? Okay. But you don't have all these infinite amount of yeah. images. So why would you want to very accurately minimize the loss over this finite amount of images? Maybe you don't. Maybe you only approximately want such that you still have freedom. Right. Such that it could be optimal also for more images that you that you don't have. As, as so if you, in images. other words, you could you could train it on the wrong thing. 
and it could only work for you know like denoising photos of apple trees. Exactly. And then you're, yeah, and exactly. then you're in the same place that you were in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. With the exactly. hand coder. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So the idea is. If you only do it approximately, you might be able to generalize it more. Gotcha. But all of this really, I mean, there are yeah. some uh, attempts to understand this, but all of this is not really, so I'm hand-waving here because okay. I can't really say anything mathematically <laughs> about that. I, but are have you pushed your research into practical practical applications at this point? Like, are you working with, you know, companies or student groups or or anyone else? So my main collaborations are actually with people in academia, but from other disciplines. Mm-hmm. So we have been collaborating a lot in recent years with people in the hospital, in the university hospital in Cambridge. So with uh, clinicians and uh, medical physicists, um, different types of applications. You know, one of the things I, I said before is that I got more and more interested in these uh, problems where you don't measure an image directly, but only indirectly mm-hmm. via these x-rays, for instance. So developing algorithms which which can get the 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 most out of very limited amount of data the most out in in terms of very high resolution images is something we have been collaborating a lot with people in magnetic resonance tomography in particular in the edinburgh's hospital which is the local cambridge hospital here but also with people in chemical engineering Mm. where one of the driving factors for people in chemical engineering uh is for instance uh, there is a, um, uh, there is a group here, which is the Magnetic Resonance Research Center, where they look in particular at processes, processes which are dynamic. So they, they have these tubes filled with water and then they pump certain things through and they want to understand what the dynamics of this process are. So now if you think about not just having a static 3D object, but mm. having something that changes over time as well. And now, Thinking back about how many X-rays, not in magnetic resonance tomography, these are not X-rays, but just going back to you. an example yeah. of what we had before. <laughs> so, um, not sending through as so many X-rays means you don't have a lot of data to reconstruct. Right. Which now, if you want to track something dynamically, also means you're not measuring a lot per time step. If you want to have a very high resolution over time, it means per time stamp you can't acquire as much data as if you would have, you know, if you just have one second for reconstructing your organ inside the body uh-huh. uh, at this particular timestamp, uh, and then you then the organ is moving again and you need to go to the next timestamp and so on, uh, you have less data f- for reconstructing each timestamp as if you would have a static object and you would have... 10 seconds to acquire this instead of one second, you can measure much more, right? Right. And then you reconstruct just one image. But now we have maybe want to reconstruct not just one image in 10 seconds, but 10 images because we want to see something evolving over time. So here also the challenges are along these lines of getting high resolution out of limited data. Another thing which is not connected to um indirect measurements so much than uh, uh than these applications in magnetic resonance tomography is that we have collaborations with people in plant sciences for instance mm. so they are interested in monitoring forest health um or forest constituencies let's say okay. from uh from airborne imaging data so they fly Mostly in my collaboration, they fly. So not so much satellite, but more flying. They fly over forest regions. Mm-hmm. And then they acquire different types of imaging data. 
they um, acquire just photographs, okay, aerial photographs, um, hyperspectral imaging data or multispectral imaging data, which means you do not only have RGB, but you have a broader range, you cover a broader range okay. over the light spectrum, so okay. also the invisible light. So you don't have just three channels, but sure. you have 200 channels or something <laughs> like this in your image. Yeah. And hyperspectral imaging is interesting. So the spectral component that you get uh, from these measurements gives you uh, an idea of what the material properties are of these trees. So it, it, it tells you something about what really. Yeah. So this is so, so, so the spectral component tells you something about the material that you, that you are looking at. So in, in other words, like, the, the so different materials the density, have a different signature tell. in the light spectrum of how they reflect light back. They have a different signature in the light spectrum. Okay. Um, and so the intent would be to figure out, you know, say for instance, like an invasive tree that was taking over an area. They could figure that out by just by flying right over it. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. And then the other thing, so this is one and then, or two aerial photographs and hyperspectral imaging. Uh, and then the third thing that they are often acquiring, uh, are LIDAR measurements. Yep. Um, where you do not just get kind of a planar picture of the trees, but you actually get a 3D model of the trees. Yeah. So this is also nice. Yeah. I was just watching a documentary about that, about, um, searching for, uh, Mayan runes with LIDAR. Okay. Flying, like flying over the Yucatan Peninsula or something. Essentially like saying like, Hey, we could take 20 years for an archaeologist to like dig around in the dirt. Or we could just fly over it and look for the hard stuff and like yeah. see what happens. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. And and are are people also looking to this in the context of, you know, for instance, like denoising um like camera footage from anything, you know, like security on one hand. Yeah, I haven't done so much work in that myself, but there are of course, you know, the I mean CCTV cameras are everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's kind of the terrifying output of figuring out this research, right? Like being tracked everywhere, like in the UK in particular. Like, I imagine people are looking to do this, right? You know, um, it's quite funny because uh, when you think about uh, these um, crime TV shows, uh, CSI, whatever, Miami or whatever, yeah. <laughs> uh, there are always these these, uh, these funny things, right? <laughs> so you don't, you have a very pixelated image. And uh, uh, you press a magic button, and then you can zoom in, and all of a sudden you can see everything. So um, when you think, of, so this is ridiculous. Yeah, uh, of course you you can't do that, but you can't do it now. Maybe you know if you have all these machine learning methods, which have learned to look at at just pixels and then know what what is a mo- what is a very probable match in terms of high resolution, maybe at some point you can do it, but then you don't know (laughs) if you're right or wrong. Right. Just, just by chance, I was reading a New Yorker article from, I think 2010 about this guy in Montreal, Uh uh, allegedly finding 500 year old fingerprints using different kinds of like spectral photography. Okay, cool. Um, uh, I haven't heard about that, oh, okay. but, uh, <laughs> but tell me more about it. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to give away the whole thing, but, yeah. uh, and then there was a, an ensuing lawsuit actually from him uh, to the New Yorker saying they like, it was libel. Um, but the basically what happens is like, he uh, was accused of faking these fingerprints that may or may not have existed. Oh man, okay. Yeah, and like copying them from... Um, a real one, duplicating them onto the back, 
using like proprietary methods to find them out. Um, but you are interested in doing it, whether whether or not it's legit. Like you want to, you want to work. With I art hope so. I mean, I'm going to tell people that it's fake. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, yeah, that's the whole idea. Yeah. yeah. Is it yeah. like, yeah? What direction are you going with uh, with art? So it, it kind of uh, in Cambridge, it started. Well, okay. Let me say a bit more. So when I again during my PhD. Um, in Vienna, there was uh, a collaboration that we had with uh, physical conservators, so with conservators who are were looking at uh, at particular wall frescoes, at frescoes in an in a in an old apartment in the city center of Vienna, which are called the Neidhardt frescoes. I'm not going more into detail, but they were in the process of uh, restorating this fre- these yep. these frescoes. And so that was my first hand experience there. And there, the idea was that, you know, it takes them a long time to physically restore these wall paintings. And once you have restored it, there is no way back, right? You need to decide what to do. Yeah. Huh? Because then it's, it sticks. <laughs> and so our idea was to uh, help them uh, by creating a virtual template of how the restoration could look if they do this or this or this. Right, yeah, so because the important part is a fresco is actually part of the wall chemically. It's yes. not paint. Exactly, Yeah. exactly. But even with paintings, you know, if, if you do something, if you do, if you manually really, you know, if you physically restore them, yeah. you've done it. Yeah. I mean, you can still maybe, you know, try to do it back, <laughs> but I mean, you, you're, 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 you're treat, you're, 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 you're just, well, you're changing a historical piece right. of the world, right? So, I mean, <laughs> this is, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so so coming here to Cambridge, uh, I got uh, uh, to know people in the Fitzwilliam Museum, which is, the, which is a museum here in Cambridge. And um, there, uh, they're interested uh, in illuminated manuscripts. So, I, I met... Uh, a very good colleague of mine who is the who is the keeper of manuscripts in the Fitzwilliam Museum um, got interested in this idea of virtual restoration because illuminated manuscripts are so fragile that you that the the culture is you never physically restore them you never hmm. physically restore them they you know if they get damaged or altered over time you leave it wow okay you leave them like this. And so there, the idea was, couldn't we create a virtual restoration and, you know, kind of exhibit the original manuscript and the virtual restoration next to each other? And so last year, there was an exhibition in the Fitzwilliam Museum, which is which was called Color. Mm-hmm. And um, in this exhibition, we had one piece, which was in a page of an illuminated manuscript, which had been altered over time, actually manually overpainted. Okay. <laughs> um, and what we did was that we exhibited the manuscript and next to it, the virtual restoration where we took off the overpaint. And, uh, yeah, and that has led to, uh, to other things. But I mean, this is, so this is kind of the idea that you don't physically change something, but you, you virtually do it, which is, you know, nothing damaged. You just yeah. virtually create a digital copy of this manuscript and you play around with it so you're you're not only going like 
back in time to see maybe like restoring it to its original you know vitality like its original color but you're actually like going deeper into the layers like this in has this been case, painted yes. over yeah and so you yeah. can go further in yeah. with imaging yeah. and then you kind of like yeah. apply everything you might already yeah, yeah. wow that's yeah. super cool yeah um so if if someone's really excited about this kind of research if they want to get into it what would you point them to where should they get started Depends what their background is. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so they they have like you know they have a CS degree. They're interested in imaging. Um, so they're they're like technical, uh, but they haven't done anything in particular like in this field. Okay. So um, so what I would advise is uh, to uh, look. So I think in particular when you think about. The U.S. I think some of the cool things uh, that uh, came out of uh, image in image processing in the last couple of years were from UCLA. So if you look at some of the the applied math faculty there and some mm -hmm. of the online lecture material or you know YouTube videos of some of their talks, I think that would be a good source mm -hmm. to look at. Uh, so, I mean, very classical names are Stan Osher, uh, Andrea Bertozzi, I mentioned. Uh, Malik, Perona, um, Stefano Soato. There are lots of people. There is, um, um, now the name escapes me. I can tell you a bit yeah, of yeah. a few more things afterwards, but I think, um, just to look for mathematical approaches to image processing, I think it would be the first thing I would do. Uh, there are very good introductory books to look at, um, that explain a bit of the basics. Great. Um, but yeah, I would first start reading a little bit uh, in these more general foundational books. And then I think just starting from that, you immediately come, go to the, you know, more modern recent years research. I think that would be a, that would be a good way to start. I can catch yeah. up to you maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> or apply here. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for making time. Yeah. Thanks. All right, thanks for listening. So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.